We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the True Faith Weekly Podcast, sponsored by Phoenix Taxis and Coaches. To book online, please visit www.phoenixtaxis.net. special True Faith weekly podcast edition. I'm joined by uh, Mick Martin, editor of True Faith, and Martin Hardy of the Sunday Times, who's here to talk about his brand new book, Touch and Distance, which is out in shops now. Um, thanks for joining us, gents. Martin, why don't you kick us off? Uh, welcome to the show, and you know why don't you tell us a little bit briefly about the book, what it's about, and the motivation for writing it. Right, uh, well, thanks for inviting me along. Um, oh, about, I don't know, 12, 18 months ago... Um, the idea started forming my head, um, perhaps getting a little bit angered at the narrative that was left behind in terms of there'd be the soundbite that it was the season Newcastle blew it, or it was the season uh, the defence was rubbish, or it was the season that Kevin Keane got uh, outwitted by Alex Ferguson. And for me, that didn't tell the story of that period for Newcastle United between 92 and 96 it didn't even get close to where the club was when Kevin Keegan came back in 1992 you know there was 15,000 there for the game against Charlton which was the last home game under Ozzy Ardiles you're talking about a club that was second bottom of the second division and you know from speaking to John Hall he said it was, a, it was the football club would have went bust if it had gone, been relegated so it didn't take into account the starting position um, it didn't take into even, if, even in, in, into effect just how special that team was, how special that period was. And there was other elements as well in terms of bringing it forward to now. You, you, you get a little bit angered by people continually saying Newcastle fans have unrealistic expectations. Um, and there seems to be a lot of stuff to hit Newcastle with. And it was kind of, here's this golden period in Newcastle's history. In, to, to, to some clubs, finishing second might not have been um, something to write a book about but there is a context and the context is it's the best team the city has seen since 1927 um, and it was a remarkable story I mean it goes one step further the relationship with Kevin Keegan starts in 1982 
when he joins the club from nowhere and the club was in an even worse position then well perhaps not necessarily worse but it was at a real low ebb a mid-table Division 2 team and Kevin Keegan signing for the club in 1982 I think changed the mindset of every Newcastle fan and it can never be changed back and that is anything is possible Kevin Keegan was the captain of Newcastle Newcastle were a team that were getting really poor gates at the end of that season um, and when he signed it, it, it was a, it, it's a really lovely notion that he left behind which is that anything's possible and that believe in your dreams that then sows the seed for him to come back in 1992 and just take the club on this marvellous marvellous adventure and I wanted to record that rather than just the, the little sound bite that was left at the finish of course it was huge disappointment but the ride to get there was, was something extraordinary. And the book, the idea kind of evolved into, I thought, well, perhaps there's a book in this. And before you know it, the idea of speaking to a few people from that period just kind of took off and you go to see different people and they say, well, you've got to see him and you've got to see him. And For example, speaking to Steve Howe, he says, you've got to go and see Brian Kilkline because he was absolutely essential in all of this. Um, he changed the mindset inside the dressing room. You know, he, he got the players to believe in themselves and um, it's it's been a tiring but exhilarating 12 to 18 months travelling all over the place from Belgium to Prague to Lancaster to London to interview these people that played such a pivotal uh, role in, in a great period for the club and the things that stood out were they loved the football club and they loved the city um, you know sat in Philippe Albert's kitchen um Round the corner in his front room is a big picture of St James's Park that's on his wall. As you walk in his door, is this ginormous Newcastle badge, and you start talking to him, and he he just says you 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 start talking to me about Kevin Keegan Martin and the hairs go up in my arm. He says it was such a such a such a club, such a, such a time. So to kind of do it justice, to, to do justice that period was a was an awful lot of work, but it was great and. Um, the reaction so far has been lovely from everybody. Brilliant. I mean, personally, maybe speaking, I didn't witness that period. Uh, I was a bit too young, but Michael, you very much remember it, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm an old fart. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, just to pick up on something Martin's just said, which probably a lot of people do forget about, and that's the position the club was in when Kevin came back in '92, and shortly before that, you know. From it's 20 years since we signed Les Ferdinand and David Ginola and Warren Barton all in that in that in that summer. Um, five years, four or five years previous to that, we'd lost one of the darkest days I've ever had following Newcastle. At Southend, we lost four nil on New Year's Day to Southend United. You know, in the pissing horrible rain, New Year's Day. I remember it vividly. I was hungover, and. Uh, and we were well beaten, deserved to be beaten by Southend, and their chant I'll never forget it was "You're not famous anymore," hmm. and I came I came out of the ground and I just thought, well, you know, this is Newcastle, just they're just a nothing team. I love them, they're my team, and then, and then five years later, you know, David Ginola's coming in from PSG, you know. What you know, the photograph that the mag had on the cover of David Ginola with his wife in a black and white striped, beautifully fitted suit, and Ginola just sending every woman's heart on mm-hmm. in the northeast, going, you know, uh, crazy. The glamour of that mm. was just incredible, and then you know to look at that, and it was everything was great at that time, even down to the strip, 
You know, the players looked great in the strip. The strip was great. You know, you, you, it's an iconic image. Les Ferdinand, David Ginola. You know, all of those players looked great in that strip. And I think, you know, one of my least favourite strips, obviously including the Wonga ones with the blue nonsense that they've got up now, was that barcode strip that they had, you know, the thick stripe. The, and it just looked shit. Everything looked... They even looked shit. <laughs> you know, they didn't look like Newcastle. And then five... Six years later, signing all these wonderful players, and they've got Kevin Keegan and frankly, we would have followed him through the gates of mm. hell, wouldn't we? Yeah. You know, he was just marvellous, and, and you know, in that short period, it was just incredible. And I don't think that could ever happen again. No, it, it, that's what I'm. I, to, to get the start of that story, you have to go back to 1982, and you have to go back to um, Kevin Keegan's first game as a player at Newcastle. Uh, Newcastle have averaged beneath 20,000 twice since the war so you have to give it a context when people throw the odd low gate around about Newcastle fans you're going well hold on a second what was the average for that season so I think Newcastle had had a couple of nine and 10,000 gates towards the end of the campaign um, before Kevin Keegan signed and then you the the, the, the St James's Park everything around it from about 10, 11 o'clock on the day of the Queen's Park Rangers game was absolute bedlam, which is what, which is you know the, the the introduction for the book, because that's when it what that's when everything changed and that's when you felt the change and it was around that time I was trying to get a word from Alan Shearer because obviously he'd been a ball boy at, um, Ke- at Kevin Keegan's final game and he'd been in the Gallagher end for Kevin Keegan's first game and he was in the process of doing his advert for Barclays and so I'm not sure I can talk about it but thankfully we got round it so he gave me a few paragraphs and. He was there, Lee Clark was there, and the one thing they said that day was just the absolute bedlam inside the ground that day. And when Kevin Keegan scored, it just felt like everything and everything in the cast had made sense. And as you said, it, it created a bond between Kevin Keegan and the supporters. That um, even even which I don't like talking too much. The, the most recent spell as a manager, it, it, it's something that will never be tainted because of what he did for the football club and, and where he took it. And um, there's so many phrases he has that are correct and he said you know the, the fans work hard they expect to come to St James's Park and they expect to see players dying for that shirt and it's such a simple philosophy and it's that's what it is you know and he got it he understood what the club meant um, somebody put it on Twitter the other night his comments was it after the Bristol City game his first game and he's walking up the tunnel and he says this is going to be the biggest club in Great Britain hmm. and people are looking at him as if he's got two heads apart from people from the region who went it's about time somebody breathed life in this football club and treated it the way it should be treated and um, took it to the, t- took it to the very top of the t- English football, which is where you thought always thought it has a chance of being if somebody does it right. I agree. I mean, I remember those two games. I was at both of them, um, the, the QBR game, which was the perfect day, hmm. per- the perfect day, um, and the and the ninety two game when we played Bristol City, incidentally managed by Dennis Smith. Who we had a bit of a thing with, didn't we? Yep. Um, and uh, and we and we won both games, and I can only describe the atmosphere inside the ground on both occasions as almost having a religious fervor. Hmm. You know the whole thing, the Keegan chant, which is you know from your boots, isn't it? That whole thing, and it was kind of right. This is where, this is what we believe in. We believe in this guy. This guy believes in us. He's got ambition. He's got vision. And, and I suppose now when you compare it to what we've been through in the last number of years with Ashley it's kind of Keegan raised your spirit 
you know, and uh, and Ashley's running of the club destroys it in many ways. And I think the two things kind of go go together. That I think he did change the club. He did change the supporters' mindsets forever. And when I was a lad, you know, cliche, grow, growing growing up, older fellas used to say to me, "You don't know what Newcastle is, man, son. Newcastle's winning a cup in the fifties three times and." Etc. Etc. And that was they were the reference points for me growing up, you know, which we'd lost in the, that terrible McGarry era, you know, um, before before Arthur Cox came, who did fix the club. Cox, you know, I think he's often a neglected mm. figure in in the club's history. And then Keegan comes, and it all makes sense. Mm. You know, everything makes everything makes sense. The whole the whole thing as a club. And when later on, when Hall, who's another man I've got a lot of time for. But starts talking about Geordie Nation and all that sort of stuff, which has become a cliche. But at the time, he absolutely nailed it with that expression, you know, a place apart, a cause, the whole thing. And now sometimes it sounds corny and cliche, etc. But at the time, at the time, within the context of what was going on, it was the perfect thing to say. And we had all that going on, didn't we? Well, I think reading the book and it's good to start on this because the book starts with Keegan's first coming in. It's it's interesting that almost every local player you speak to in the book, I don't know whether he did this purpose, but their first reference with you is that. They all, you know, from Rob Elliott to Lee Clark to Peter Beardsley to Watson, all of them, even Steve Howie, I think. I think there's a great anecdote in about Steve Howie's dad and holiday. Um, it, it clearly like it affected them and they've gone on to become professional footballers and lived the life that even then most of us could only dream of and they're all talking just like you are Michael there about that impact they had was, it, was that something that was kind of easy for you to talk about with them did they want to talk about it um, well it's funny that a lot of the North East lads came later on in the story although Peter Beers he was near the beginning uh, were, were kind of amongst the later interviews that I did and I was going to go there anyway but they would go there themselves so Lee, Lee Clark for instance the story about um children being picked up off the floor because they're all f- and flying off the barrier as well that's in everybody's memory so when he st- when they start telling that and Alan Shearer says I was at the back of the Gallagher and I ended up near the front yeah. the, the, if, you, if, if you as I say in the introduction if you go to YouTube you will see it it's just absolute pandemonium and there's a there's a the pictures took ages to find and you know it's not when it was pre-digital and obviously in 82 it was even bef- long before that but you go this there's a picture near the front um, of the pic- of the, the photographic section and it's a fan picking up Kevin Keegan and you just look at how full the Gallagher end is and there are people climbing on the top the, there was no there was no space whatsoever in the ground there was a close that to me with the jeans on <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were on the flag uh, it, the ground was just incredibly full and when you realise how many people were affected by that day and it, as he said it was a nice story Steve Howie was from a son and family and he said he's him and his dad and the family were on holiday I think they went well in Scotland did he say and his dad went Keegan's finished he'll do now Tim after he'd signed <laughs> so it affected everywhere and, he, and Lee Clark's recollection saying oh you heard your dad and his mates talking about it but you never thought it was going to happen all of the, the, the memory is still so vivid for everybody of that era because it did it it changed everything from um, being a club of potential it was kind of they can do anything now if you, and, and not, not, it wasn't necessarily true I certainly wasn't true until Keegan came back as a uh, as a manager and said, "Right, we'll take it a step further, a couple of steps further than we did when I was a player here." Um, but it just altered, it completely altered the mindset of the supporters, and you, and you can't take it back. You, you can't 
have a, 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 a spell when the man comes in and takes saves keeps the club up takes it up the next season and then says Manchester United we're after your title and comes within a whisker of doing it and Rob Lee says in the book when they read the programme notes the players were going bloody hell Kevin come on man do us a favour yeah <laughs> but then he said we all kind of went well why can't we we're good players why can't we whereas now there is a, a real temper of, temper of ambition which is we'll move it slowly and slowly and that, Newcastle moves best when it's is at its best when it's moving forward quickly and you've just got to jump on and hold on that's how that's how the club moves moves when it's really successful do you know just before you came on we were talking about the, the period of, 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 of Kevin signing and, uh, and and I mentioned to to Alex that you know Newcastle even though we were in the second division we were one of the biggest clubs in the country in those two seasons because we were kind of pulling in crowds of 34, 35, 36,000 in clubs like Everton who were three seasons away from winning the league were 20, 22 you know um, Arsenal I think won the league with an average gate of about 27, 28,000 I believe you know and Newcastle were like wow you know we were, we were off them off the map interestingly we were paying higher prices to get into St James's in the world Old Trafford and Anfield in, that, in those days as well oh, yeah. um, but interestingly there was a few clubs clocked what Newcastle had done with Keegan and you know there was, they got a lot of help from the SNN in terms of paying them because mm-hmm. he, he, he always liked to be well paid, uh, Kevin Keegan. But so there, there was a few clubs tried it. One of them was Sunderland with Frank Worthington, you know, a, a, a great player, but never, never worked really to the same degree. And Charlton did with Alan Simonson, the mm-hmm. famous Danish player. Yeah, they nice. got him. It didn't really galvanise them, and that's because there wasn't anything to be galvanised really. It was just it was a Newcastle thing, and it was. A fascinating period, and it did absolutely sow the seeds of him. You know, he left in '84 and then came back eight years later after playing golf in Marbella for goodness knows how many. Years. I mean, what what was interesting from talking to Kevin was um, just the impact that his family had had on him. Obviously, you know, he was in Yorkshire, but he said that his dad's side of the family would come down, and he said his dad would start talking in a thicker Geordie accent. Uh, he said he didn't even know what words like champion meant um, but he said it kind of they were singing they would have him singing the blading races when he was a kid and he said and I don't think Newcastle fans ever felt this he said he thought it was in his genes and he always said I knew one day I would play for Newcastle and that, and that wasn't that was the perception that Newcastle fans had at the time nothing uh, nothing felt like it could be further from the truth when they, when they were struggling on but it's you know that, there was a link there before he joined the club and it was interesting to find out that was 1981 when Arthur Cox with Stan Seymour went to see his agent when he was at Southampton and said if he's ever available please let us know and it was a I'm not sure if it was a fallout with Laurie McMenemy who was a Southampton manager at the time but it was a you don't have you don't quite have the ambition here and from that moment Arthur Cox moved very quickly and you know brought brought a figure to Newcastle that changed the, changed the football club if you fast forward a little bit, I mean, it's interesting what you said before, Michael, about John Hall. John Hall to me, and I don't know anywhere near as much as you guys do about his or his family's run another club, but he comes across very well in the book, I find, because, I mean, you've obviously spoken to him quite a lot. Yeah. Um, the picture you paint of Newcastle before Keegan walks in is grim, even for someone like me, and my dad's been a season ticket holder for as long as it's been season tickets, and he's tried to kind of tell us the, I mean, You'll know better than me off the top of your head, but the, I mean a couple of examples that Keegan changed straight away. You know the repainting of the dressing rooms, cleaning of the boots. I mean it, it seems mental to think that footballers wouldn't clean their boots <laughs> game to game now. And Kevin Keegan changed that. 
There's also the share. Was there a share issue, a bond issue? Uh, there was a, there was an attempt by John Hall for, on a supporter share issue, which didn't take off. And he put it down to because the existing board was there, and it had been something that you know the McKeague, it was in the McKeague family that the supporters didn't trust enough to come on board at that time. I understand, I understand a lot of mixed, comp- perhaps um, cynicism towards John Hall. The book finished in 1996. See, the, the, there's a lot of stuff that comes after that. But even then, I would say you'd gone to St James's Park and the Leeds had, had been this crumbling terrace for however 16 years it was before they actually started to rebuild it. The Gallagher had never had a roof. The existing board had rebuilt, had knocked down the old West Stand and rebuilt it with a Melbourne stand and the roof didn't even cover half the people in it. So you watch, this, you watch the ground become a stadium and you know before you know the Lees then popped up and then the Gallagher then popped up and then it became a ball and it just always felt like everything was getting made better so I, there's a political argument to what happened after 1996 which obviously um, is, a, is a different story but around that time what John Hall did you know you would have places like the High Pit Social Club in Cramley which isn't even there anymore and these were really raucous nights whereby there was a lot of die-hard Newcastle fans there who would become um, frustrated with the way the club had been run. And Hall sat in the middle of them and said, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And I'm, I think that's what you're alluding to. The comment is, he said, you have to create dialogue with the support. He says, you can't tell them everything you're doing. He said, but you have to tell them a lot of stuff that you're doing because you want them to come with you. And there, there is a contrast with that ideology and perhaps what... The, with the, the way the club is currently run then I don't want to go down a stereotypical route but the people of the North East are fairly warm open people now who's the manager that responded best to Kevin Keegan who was, was very warm and open with them um, Bobby Robson obviously was from the same as well so you need that dialogue you need an element of openness with the club so the, the, the people up here know what's going on because they're obsessed by the football club it's, you go to any pub or amongst your friends within an hour, it's a conversation that's popping up, what's going on, what's going on. So sometimes to put the information up first means you're setting the agenda rather than following one or... Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, uh, especially some of the anecdotes about John Hall again, back on the train as well after London away games and basically holding three-hour-long Q&A sessions. Obviously, it just wouldn't happen. I don't think it would happen to any football club today, let alone Newcastle, but it's certainly... A, marked difference in the times there's no question he was a great communicator with a great message um, it's just and he, he, he made a positive imprint for a, a, a short period of time but he, when that ne- the reason Keegan left was because of Hall let's, let's, let's be honest floating the club on the stock market which is when the, the rot set in which was we weren't a club about Saturday afternoons and winning and signing the best players. It was about getting a dividend for Hall and Shepard, and that's what the club became thereafter. It had a brief flowering under um, Bobby Robson, who kind of turned against the tide, but the the objective at that time became all about filling their pockets, and the evidence is there. They did, you know, they did. They were the best some of the best paid directors and remuner- had the best remuneration in, in Europe, you know, yes. um, at, at a club that wasn't winning leagues, you know, that mm-hmm. were getting paid Man United type money, you know, so, um, so, that, so there was that, but you can't, it is undeniable that they did transform that, that, the, the club's fortunes, how it looked, how it felt, 
etc. <clears throat> but you sometimes, in hindsight, I look back now with Hall and I think, yeah, you knew what was you knew what was coming with Sky. You knew what was the club was capable of. You got Freddie Shepherd, uh, Freddie Fletcher in from Rangers, yeah. who. At the time, I wasn't fond of them, but in hindsight now, I look at kind of the people they've got running the club, and and I compare them to Freddie Fletcher, and there's no comparison. He was the he was the best at what he did in the country because Rangers um, at that point they were bigger than Man United. Nice. They were, they were, you know, in the eighties, early nineties, Rangers were massive, massive. You know, they they were taking England internationals over the nice. under the noses of those clubs. Mm. Um, so they went and got that guy who had sorted the merchandise and now he, he put a lot of noses out of joint in so doing but he increased the club's wealth now put him up against who they've got there now and there's no comparison there's, there's a really nice phrase from Brian Klein in the book when he says it, him and his wife once you get past the big man who is slightly wild or was slightly wild in his own words when he's having a philosophical moment with his wife Lynn and he they both say what's it about and they say talking about life and they both say it's about the ride you get on a ride and before you know it if you're lucky it's, it's one you'll never forget and I think Keegan and Hall came together at the perfect time to take Newcastle fans on this this marvellous ride now the one thing in terms of Fletcher and I understand what you're saying about Hall the one thing they understood is that if you put the team first everything else will follow so there was there was contract you know the there was controversies at the time in terms of the Platinum Club and the movement of supporters but there was always you could always look at the pitch and go well it's making sense in terms of like bringing better quality and the team looks stronger that's the biggest difference to now in terms of you get controversial decisions but the team is never put put first it's very this summer you'll see yes three new players have come in it needs more but in eight years under Mike Ashley you think They've never got that most simple element of put the team first, put the team first, and watch everything else fall into place. That's and that's the biggest thing they haven't got, which Hall got. Hall got that without a doubt, and uh, and with Keane alongside him, they were a dynamic duo for a while. Everything has a time. To to a degree, they even put the team. They put the team ahead of where it should have been because mm. I think they made they made some huge mistakes around that time you know so you know when clubs were investing in academies and training facilities etc Newcastle were training on virtually on the equivalent of a public park oh it's, you know, it's in the books you know you've got David Ginola playing on you know people walking their dog and watching <laughs> David Ginola training and there's Ferdinand you know and they're picking off dog shit off the you know it was crackers you know it was absolutely crack so they should have been investing in that and not in that ridiculous sporting club you know idea with buying rugby clubs and ice hockey teams and what was that was yeah that, that was, was just, that was damaging and that was a mistake that, that was crap you know so uh, and that held the football club back you know because they should have been thinking about uh, about that but for me that betrays Hall's obsession with money because I think he felt I'm only guessing I think he felt television is this massive golden well of dosh and I've got a football club and the same thing's going to happen with rugby, ice hockey and basketball but never really did huh. and as soon as it became obvious it wasn't he got rid of those clubs um, yeah. but you know that's maybe a negative it was in, in, to talk about an extre- in an extremely positive period yeah. you know, the best period I've had following the club well, we may as well move on to, to Keegan's return to the club, and you alluded to Brian Kilkline there. It's probably my favourite part of the book. 
just your interview with him and the stuff he said, he's just obviously a, I don't know, a very positive bloke. Um, yes, larger than life. Larger than life. So Keegan returns to the Club 92. We've talked about a little bit how lonely Castle were. What kind of feeling did you get from the people that you spoke to about what was the, the biggest change that he made to him and Terry Mack, who gets a lot of credit in the book from yeah. a, lot of, a lot of people? What do you think they did that was so different to, to turn us around so quickly? Oh, I'm not sure if there was one um, secret ingredient. Um, I think the blasted positivity in the place. Um, I know one of Kevin's stories was that players were taking their black and white strips home and bringing them back, and <laughs> some of them had gone grey because the, yeah. the wives had washed it with the with the colours. I think, and, and he also said he said he'd left it in 1984, and he said the club had declined. It hadn't even, it wasn't even the same as it had been when he left. He said it it had, it had gone fairly rotten. Um, I think he just brought standards in, belief, raised expectations. He, he did everything you wanted the person in charge of the football club to be doing. He just uh, he, he raised the bar. He brought he brought in some really clever signings like Brian Kilkline and um, somebody. You know, he, he tells the stories of if he was out with the lads, he would look after them if they were having a, a moment. And he said they looked after him on the pitch. But he gave them a bit of bravery. I think um, made the team believe in itself. Um, just so 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 much positivity came with Kevin Keegan, and I, I don't think there's one single thing he did to, that, that you would say, well, that was the, that was the magic stroke. Uh, he brought you know he brought in Terry McDermott because he said I want people around me that I can trust. Um, he stood up to the board, which Newcastle as a club had needed for generations, and it's if you if you kind of drawn comparisons to then and now and you'd say what was the, the thing that Newcastle fans wanted Alan Pardew to do was kind of like fight your corner mm-hmm. this club is used to the manager challenging the board and it's used to the manager putting the team first that was probably you know that's one of the slights you'd say against Alan Pardew in terms of you were too accepting of this is how it is it can't change and I understand you you walk in a real title without Mike Ashley and that he would probably you know you'd be looking to fight if you were too confrontational but Keegan did that. He, you know, he, he went after the board when they didn't give him the money for the Killer Client deal. He went after them in the summer and said, "You're going to have to do this to buy Paul Bracewell, Barry Venison, and John Bracewell." And that's what the, that's what had been needed for so long. Instead of this malaise in terms of Seymour and McKee and this grim acceptance that the best players you have have to be sold, which is again has come back <laughs> has come back into vogue. He turned that on his head and he, he says. We brought the best players back, mm-hmm. and as to be around Newcastle United football comes, like, hang on a second, you were used to Waddle leaving or Gascoigne leaving or Beardsley leaving. He's he's bringing in brilliant new players, and he's also bringing Peter Beardsley back, and bringing in really strong players like Rob Lee. He changed the mindset of the boardroom, which was a huge battle. And so to have won that, then everything else starts to fall into place. Mom, do you think he brought in um, certain players with character? So, you know, I, I remember at the time, and Mickey Quinn was a favourite of mine, you know, I, I liked him at the time, but you always wondered, like, you kind of what, how professional he was off mm. the park, you know, he just always struggled with his weight and had a bit of a laddish kind of image with beer and such, such like, Keegan got rid of him, you know, he made it, he made it his business to get rid of him, he didn't have a chance under, under Keegan, and he never, Kevin Keegan never really signed any wrongings. You know, mm. he never signed any wrongings, and they, and if you if you crossed him, if you didn't behave, you were out. And you know, and I look at lads like David Kelly, who's you know an iconic figure for those that watched him. 
far, far from being the best player we've ever seen, but a hot, mm. as big as a frying pan, and Gavin Peacock, same time, Clarky, all those players had character, and, and Paul Bracewell and Venison, who we brought in in the summer, they did as well. So he was always looking after, look, seemed to me to look at the character of players. So there, w- there weren't any decades that he signed, really. I can't remember. No, no. I mean, there's, there's two interesting elements to that. I mean, one was John Beresford told me that um, Keegan was told him, he says, who's good? Who do, who do you rate? Who's, who's, who's difficult to play against? And John Beresford went, Rob Lee. And he went, no, I've been, to- I've been told a few things about Rob Lee. I'll have a look. And then he says, we got too late. He gets pulled into Kevin King's room. There's your new, there's your new roommate, <laughs> and he said, and he says, and Rob Lee repeated the same story, and Rob Lee said, twenty years later, I'm getting texts off, often of, giving him, giving me abuse. So you would check the talent and check the character of the player, and it's also it's interesting today. We were speaking to Steve McLaren. I don't think I'm breaking too many trusts from the interview, and he said, um, Jorginho Wijnaldum makes his first couple of uh, appearances in training sessions. And he said, the other players are looking straight away to see, is he any good? And he said, they give him the nod, oh, this fella's not bad at all. And what Kevin Keegan kept doing, buying better. Make sure the player you bring in is better, because the other players are looking to see, what the, what's this lad like? Um, so to move it forward, I know we'll go back, you go back the season, Newcastle finished fifth on Alan Pardew, and Colaccini and Kabai, players in the prime, were waiting. Mm. We're waiting for the three or four players that were going to push Newcastle to the Champions League. No disrespect, the only person that arrived was Vernon Anita. And you, you just deflate your dressing room. Keegan could, Keegan, Keegan could feel the pulse of the dressing room. And what was interesting, it's probably taken me 20 years to get my head around the sale of Andy Cole. <laughs> but Kevin Keegan talking about it and also watching the programme that Kevin Keegan did on it uh, and how uncomfortable Andy Cole was with all the fame and all the, the responsibility amongst the, the community of Tyneside. And he went, Keegan's phrase was, he had ran his race for us. And I think he got it. At the time, I didn't, but now you think you had it bang on because all it takes is one egg that's not quite right, and the whole thing starts to go off. And he moved them on as quickly as he could. Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, modern parallels. Look at Newcastle's following season when there was dressing room discourse; the whole thing mm. just completely fell apart. Um, again, to back up what you, what you say about players and training, new players coming in. I think there's a great anecdote in the book about Scott Scott Sellers and David Genola when he basically realises he's, he's fucked <laughs> that's what he says <laughs> first day of training with Janola. Um I like so I like the follow up one from that which was from uh, Steve Watson and it was uh, he said we were getting changed at Maiden Castle and uh, he said David Janola took his shirt off and he looked like Tarzan and Scott Sellers went you've got to be kidding me he says that's all I need <laughs> so if we return to Keegan's obviously just taken over as manager that first few games I mean Michael he asked I, you know, tap into your memory when it started to go a bit tits up and we lost five in a row which is alluded to in the book I think that's five in a row oh yeah the, sorry yeah. The, yes. were you thinking this bloke's not up to this or you, or, or you I never ever thought he wasn't up to it right. never, never ever thought he wasn't up to it um, there, there's obviously there's the you know the run in when we didn't run in really um, that, that's been talked about talked to death and everybody's got a theory on it and nobody's right and nobody's wrong because it can't be proven either way it's just there were certain games we weren't strong enough away from home. You're talking about the I, season when Castle nearly went down. Oh, Division 3 I. 6 2 at Wolves and beg the 4 1 at yeah. Derby. 
no, well, same same applies. Yeah. I, I didn't I didn't think I never lost faith in him. I didn't think he he wasn't the right man for the job because the he was he was it. It was shit or bust really with him. Hmm. And um, and there was there was a, a game away at Derby, which were lost, and we had three players sent off, two or three players three players sent off, off and McDermott the, the, this game when we did the radio show recently we did best and worst and away games and this one featured quite heavily and <laughs> you know it was the best of times it was the worst of times at that game because I look at the I look at the sendings at the, at the time I thought this was just an absolute aberration the referees out to get one and the name Brian Connington is burned <laughs> into the memory cells of a lot of people for being you know bastard number one you know Kevin Scott God, he's setting yellow card for flattening Marco Gabbiadini though. Uh, well, so all well, all well <laughs> good. But actually, they all, they all deserve to go. You know, he had O'Brien kicking somebody up the, running after someone, <laughs> kicking him up the arse. You know, he had, he had to, he had to go. But at the time, what I remember is Kelly just running himself into the ground. And at the end of the game, when we'd lost, the whole away end absolutely solid and so vociferous, you know, and defiant. And I thought this team's not going to go down. You know, I didn't know, but I was thinking, oh, I can't see it. Not with this, mm. you know. And obviously, then followed the 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 massive game with Portsmouth at home. You know, talk about. I think everybody was in a different part of the ground when the kick when the game kicked off again. <laughs> um, and that was just that was a you know I've got quite an emotional memory of that because I met a guy at half time, me friends, me dad's friend who was dying of cancer. Who'd went to the game and he wasn't? I was saying, "Are you all right? Are you how are you yeah. doing?" He went, oh, "We're not going to get in the third division, so no." <laughs> and that was, you know, it was quite an emotional point. And it, yeah, he was dead three or four months after that. But um, that game, and then the game away at Leicester. Uh, there's a guy who writes for True Faith, Garth Bradshaw, great, a great, great lad. Tells a story of how his dad got dressed up as a St John's ambulance man because he <laughs> couldn't get tickets for the away end, and they walked in, and there's. Tommy Bradshaw of Cranlinton um, dressed up as a St John's ambulance with his little white bag and his missus had put his sandwiches in at half time and that you know and that that would have got in the book by that, the way that, 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 whole, that whole thing you know was just absolutely fantastic I didn't find out about that until years later and when he was 10 I had tears rolling down my eyes But and that was very naughty outside the whole thing you know the pitch invasion yeah. you know it wasn't it wasn't a walk in the park it was rough outside and um, but you know it stayed up and Keegan said it'll never be like this again Yeah, and it wasn't no, I think you alluded to that in the book about how it was a bit helter skelter outside and inside the ground yeah, for, for Newcastle fans but so Obviously, we've stayed up, and what I found really interesting was probably because I don't know as much as I should. I didn't know that Keegan was so close to walking away from the club. I knew there was that story about him driving away when he first yeah, came, yeah, but even spring, even yeah. the summer, it, you, yeah. you, you tell the story about how it wasn't uh, it wasn't a done deal that he was going to take charge of the club the next season. No, Terry McDermott says it was oh, yes and no, and yes and no, and he said I was desperate to go back, but he said it was all in Kevin's hands, and Kevin put pressure on the board. And came to an agreement whereby if it didn't take off, David Kelly and Gavin Peacock would be sold. But he was assuring them, say, look, get these players in. We'll we'll take this we'll take this club to places it's never been before. But after the final game of Leicester, he said, I've said what needs to be done. If it isn't, you'll need a miracle worker to turn this club round. <laughs> Newcastle had the miracle worker. He just had to create a relationship with the board where he would go, look, do this, and watch us watch us go off. And 
the start of the next season was just chalk and cheese. You're talking eleven games, eleven successive victories on the trot was unbelievable. Well, it was incredible. On that, I've got on my notes here. One of the most impressive things, and again, fair play to Keegan and John Hall. When Keegan says in the book or Terry Mack, I can't remember who it is, that they bought Andy Cole what, halfway through last yeah. season. Not for now, but they just knew we're yeah. going to be a Premier League club, we need a Premier League player. That kind of planning and foresight, the club could only dream of these days. Well, like. you know, at that time, when you think what they had, they had Gavin Peacock, who was a fantastic player. I mean, remember, he left mm. and went to Chelsea. David Kelly, who wasn't a fantastic player, but he was a wholehearted player. They had got Newcastle up. You know, those players, but Kevin was like so cold in his assessment for being such a supposedly emotional guy mm. Cold in his assessment and they were going and he brought Cole in and you know Cole was unbelievable and then he brought Peter Beardsley in so he changed Peacock Kelly for Beardsley Cole Oof, wow you know and you know Beardsley was just an unbelievable player yeah. you know when he came back and I, I sometimes think was he was a better player when he came back than the one he left that left you know and, and we didn't get him in his peak because he spent that in Liverpool mm. but that period there was just in, incredible what he what he did and you know players like Liam O'Brien who had been f- fantastic for Newcastle never he was he was on the way out he wasn't going to stay you know oh, he, he, he wasn't good enough you know he was going to leave guy and Kevin King brought a ruthlessness that he'd learned at Liverpool which was thank you very much bye what I was going to say <laughs> about the whole thing about Keegan walking out etc I think you know he did, he definitely threatened a few times didn't he but he was so influenced by Shankly um, and you know, I used to talk about him, and you yeah, know yeah. better than me, Mark. No, no. Press conferences because I used to read the stuff, you know, uh, hang on every word. But he used to talk about Shankly quite a lot, a lot. And apparently, that was Shankly's thing. Right. He used to kind of say, "That's it, I'm finished." <laughs> and it was a device to get what he want to get what he wanted. Where and you know, you can question whether or not it's right or the wrong thing, but it worked, didn't it? It worked for Bill Shankly, and it worked for Kevin Keegan to a lesser degree in Newcastle. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and I suppose the body of the book, uh, you know, is that kind of period from ninety four, ninety five to ninety five, ninety six. The well, you know, definitely the ninety five, ninety six season. Out of all the guys that you spoke to for uh, for the book, kind of who was the most passionate? I, you alluded to at the start of this interview about people that just loved the city. Mm. It wasn't just the football club; it was the city. Out of everyone you spoke to for that kind of ninety four, ninety five, or that Premier League era, who was the person that kind of relished it the most? It'd be it, that's as hard a question as who was the best interview. Um, there was so many, so, so many still loved the club. Um, no, you, you could go right through them to to pick out one to say he was more passionate than anybody else would be unfair. I mean, perhaps it's a, a slight bit more unusual that you sat, sat in Belgium or in a restaurant in the centre of Prague and this bloke's telling you how they don't get Newcastle enough. They still love the city. Coming yeah. back five times a year isn't enough. So I think they they all understood what the club meant. Um, the you know the Terry McDermott interview was a really long one, which is might if you twist my arm, be, um, that might be my favourite one of, of how I've written it. Rather, not necessarily in terms of sitting down, but we were in his house for five hours, and nice. um, you've got a man that grew up outside of Anfield, goes to Bury, signs for Newcastle, goes to Liverpool, wins the European Cup. Scores the first goal against Borussia Mönchengladbach. Um, comes back to Newcastle, leaves Newcastle, gets the nod from Kevin Keegan, and comes back. And then, because obviously each chapter is a game, he's mm. on the team bus that goes back to Anfield for the game that is widely recognised as the greatest the Premier League's ever seen. So it was just there was so much there to get our teeth into. Um, 
you know he still lives in the northeast now. That's how much he he loves the place and loves the football club. But it was but it was evident from from so many of them. Rob Lee said, you know, the first again, which is in in there, the, the first time his mates came up, they thought they were going to get chinned because these <laughs> group of blokes started talking them, and they said they just wanted to chat about football. And he said, they, and he said the one thing he realised it's just people from the northeast are more friendly than people from the south. Uh, and he says he said my biggest regret was leaving. Yeah. Les Ferdinand said my biggest regret was I only spent two years there. So he went right through them, and you know, there's not one of them above anybody else said could could claim to be the most passionate because they all were, and that, that was kind of mirrored in the way the team played. But definitely, if, if people who are listening to this who have read the book, you know, will understand that um, there's just so, it's, it's, there's just so much content in there about former players who absolutely love the city, not just the football club, but the city. I know the two go hand in hand. Again, allude to modern times. Look at Newcastle's play over the past five, six, ten years. I, I doubt if anyone sat down to read it. Even the players that finished fifth, I know it's not quite the mm. same. They're not going to be gushing about the city or the nightlife or the mm. people they bump to or stuff like that. I'll just come back to your comment um, there about the four-three game because it is really interesting. Terry Mack's insight to like half-time, yeah. full-time, the bus home when he said people weren't on the bus home. They weren't that despondent. Mm. I, I watched that game now when you see Keegan. Yeah, yeah. Slopes was born. You think, oh, pretty hell, the world's caved in. Yeah. But at the time, they actually thought, well, we're still in a reasonable position here to win the league. And the Premier League and the media, especially, have kind of tried to focus, mm. shift the focus back, saying Newcastle lost the league against Liverpool. That's, yeah, yeah. You watch the programmes on Sky, Newcastle lost the league against Liverpool, but it wasn't, as he explained, quite like that. But one comment Terry Mack does say is he thinks it, he's a scarred. Yeah, that Keegan, was, that's a pretty massive, I'm glad he picked comment. That's, yeah. that's a huge comment, and I would be inclined to agree. Right. I think there was an. I don't know if the ideology died that night, but you, you, there's like the you know I watched the game through and in the 80th minute, which again I've mentioned, Philippe Albert plays a long ball down the line, Les Ferdinand out muscle Steve Harkness and suddenly he's one on one in front of the away end and he hits a shot that he's hit it maybe he's a little bit too straight, but David James didn't know an awful lot about it. That ball goes in, everything thereafter changes because I don't think Liverpool are going. Liverpool wouldn't win the game from that point. They might squeeze a draw, but I think they would have been deflated then, as deflated then as Newcastle were when the fourth goal went in uh, at the other end um, but it yeah Scott, you know he, Terry McDermott knew Kevin Keegan better than anybody and it was if, when he said it kind of my ears pricked up and he went he changed you know that mm. it scarred him because it, it would it would have left a heavy mark on him because it was a a dream style of football you look at how how many offensive players were on Newcastle's team that night but also watch the last go and watch the last 10 minutes just how much they were fighting for each other and everybody was scrapping and um, given their all because you know they, they wanted to try and get it over the line nobody in that team had given it up and as you say as well in terms of the, the, the kind of the idea that Newcastle lost the title that night is amongst the reasons for writing the book it's not it wasn't lost at Liverpool it wasn't lost at Blackburn it wasn't lost such and just there were just a myriad of reasons as to why and you get my conclusion is that it just wasn't it wasn't meant to be Man United won it yeah, you know, Man United won it. Newcastle didn't lose it. It wasn't ours to lose. Yeah. Man United won it, and they were phenomenal. Mm. You know, um, you know, Schmeichel had the best season he's ever had. I mean, he was unbelievable. Some of the saves were. I mean, the game at Newcastle when Cantona scored one nil, that scored me. That's mm. when I. That's when I thought mm, maybe not. Mm. You know that that was the game where they broke. They maybe broke our back. You know that mm. that game, and that first half. You know, I mean. 
what we had to do to score, I don't know. I mean, Ferdinand had so many chances to score, and that looked like they were in practically in the back of the net. And you know, and then Schmeichel would stick out an elbow and it would go out. It was he wasn't incredible. And the other thing that was Cantona was like an absolute man possessed, you know. And the Man United kept going till the last minute, the last second of every single game. They were absolutely driven and relentless. And they won it. Well, in, in the progression, uh, Martin alludes to what you've just said there about, for me, I think about Ferguson, I think attacking football. What was it? Seven or eight? One nil wins yeah. in that run? And that's, that's not Man United. The Man United I've grown up with. Yeah. Man United I've grown up with three, you know, three, four goals. One nil. You can imagine Newcastle fans at the time, well, you guys don't have to imagine you were there, but the players coming off to a game how many oh, one nil again tight game yeah, they, just, they, they, and it's they, just uh, it was almost like a machine the, the radio like guys at the match you know it's one out the bastards have scored you know it was it was terrible but there were games that we should have won you know mm. let's, oh. let's get it right you know there was a, there was t- there was a week where we lost one out at West Ham I think 2-0 two, two yes two nil, Newcastle, the, Newcastle at the Pope would yeah. twice we lost that game and then we drew threes each on the, sat- on the Saturday, the world and his wife were beating Man City. Mm. They went down that year. <laughs> but you go and watch the goals. Man City's goals are just so fortuitous. You're like, dear me. <laughs> you watch it. And as I said, you got a punt from those. I think. Yeah. Did West Ham go down that year as well? Um, I don't know. I don't. No, the, I, mean, I don't the, think they did. If they if they didn't, they weren't they weren't far away from it. Yeah. And we should have got more than one point from those two games. You know, we get four points from those games. And, and uh, as you ready go, you go inside the boot. It's Alex Ferguson sat in bed with his wife because he's admitted he, he goes to Eric Cantona in his hotel after Cantona's been banned. Cantona's a miserable man who says he's packing in football and Ferguson goes, that's fine. And then he's sitting in bed with his wife. If, if Kathy Ferguson hadn't have said anything that night in bed, which was basically, oh, Alex, I didn't think you were going to give in that easily to the establishment. If she hasn't, hasn't, doesn't say that, there is a chance Eric Cantona goes back to France and I'm not sure Man United would have found anybody capable of doing what he did that season. So again, there's just so many little twists and turns. And yeah. Newcastle could have Newcastle had a, uh, Keith Gillespie had a shot saved at one one at Blackburn. There's so many little twists and turns. Well, like, Loads of little things. I mean, I had a little cockeyed theory that I thought Beardsley's legs just went in nice. that in that that second half of that season. It was maybe just it's one season too much for him. But you know, which is perhaps why. There's a reason for that. There's also the thing, like I think well, I had a Twitter exchange with a, a guy a couple of nights ago about about Barry Venison, you know. He'd been there, his character might have been because he he'd been used to winning leagues mm. and he'd been around that at Liverpool. And that there was I think there was somebody said it at the time, Newcastle don't have a folk history to fall back on about well, you know, in '78 when we won the league, we did this. Oh, they you know, and you, there was no history around the club; it was uncharted territory. So that was that made it that made it really hard. And of course, they were up against, you know, the greatest manager that's probably mm-hmm. ever lived um, in Ferguson. Goals me to say it, but you know, you have to give credit where he's due, and he was at his peak at that point as well. You know, and arguably one of the greatest teams Manchester United have ever had. Definitely, you look across yeah. that midfield, the front two, the back four, the back five. That, Another thing, you know, Man United had Peter Schmeichel, uh, Steve Bruce, Gary Pallister as their three men at the back. Either side, they've got Gary Neville and Dennis Irwin. It, you know, with Roy Keane in front, that's pretty much a, a, a back six that any team would take now. 
and were widely revered at the time and that team conceded two less goals than Newcastle yeah. <laughs> not, 20, not 22 I, I, less, I, do, I, do two. Think, I do think the team was lacking in something at that, at that time you know it was a very god it was great to watch but I often think if we'd had a Colin Hendry if we'd had a Tony Adams those games at Liverpool we might not have lost and that's no disrespect to the, yeah, the yeah. lads that played in the back four they were good competent defenders but they weren't the top they weren't the top top defenders like Tony Adams or Colin Hendry or even Steve Bruce mm. you know, to be honest if they'd had somebody like that to say you go here you stand there you know when they've got Genoa and Beresford on one side you know they say right we need to mm. stop the balls coming in <laughs> from that from that side you know and the, maybe they didn't have that kind of know-how. They didn't have that ballast at the at the back, which would have got them over, which would have got stopped them conceding those extra two goals. Yeah, which would have got where, which would have got with it. And 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 because it's all linked. In nineteen eighty four, Arthur Cox resigns because the board won't give him the money to buy three players, and one of them is Steve Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's incredible. And there's so much in the book about that. Like you say, every chapter is a game towards the end of the season. Mm. Um, and it's, re- it's really really interesting I'm not just saying that because he's sat here um, <laughs> but uh, it is it is really interesting how I mean I, I, I can't relate to too many players I've heard speak to and obviously it's a special time in a lot of uh, in the career of those players but every player you speak to for every game has a moment like Mike was talking about mm-hmm. the say if this hadn't happened or maybe if this hadn't happened and even Keith Gillespie and Yaluto at the start of the season got injured and like you just mentioned well, they, took, they took him out at Man United they took him out over the Christmas I think it was Gary Neville wasn't it yeah. and um, you're, you're saying Beardsley's legs Phil went Phil and then, I got them the when I was talking he said no it was Phil yeah. and then um, I think in the book you say Beardsley or, or Keith Gillespie says, someone says Beardsley gets moved to the right yeah. and he's less effective and you've just kind of alluded to that that's yeah. the kind of makes sense and little things like that well, I feel, yeah. Phil Neville hasn't done a hatchet job on him yeah. things could have been different well all the theories are right and all the theories are wrong it cannot be proven they're just talking points, you know. When, when when the idea at first was starting to form in my mind, as I said, about eighteen months ago, uh, I think it was around my mum. She was still banging on about nothing would ever be, would ever be any good at Newcastle because Kevin Keegan's team was so great. Uh, I was in a taxi driver going to a night out, and I was driving in the pudding chair, and he stopped the car for about ten minutes and said, "You know, I had a season taking the leases then in the nineties, and it was the greatest time of my life." <laughs> The young lads from the football team for my were having an argument because the four three had been on the telly about and I thought it's still everywhere you turn in Newcastle. This 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 season will be here probably long after us because I don't see Newcastle ever getting that close again. So it's probably gonna grow, to be honest, and become more romantic. We could be sitting in two thousand and forty seven going, Remember that team? Do you remember that team? Because but I don't see any yeah. desire to recreate anything like that. I give a mate of mine some credit, which is difficult for us, but I remember mm. walking down Strawberry Place after the Tottenham game, which was mm. the final game of the season. Yeah. And, I'm, and, and I was positive, I was saying, you know, just got to hang around at the top end of the league and it'll happen. We've mm. just got to make sure we're hanging around and we'll get a run and it'll happen. And Stevie Lake, he said to me, 20 years later, he says, we'll be talking about this. And yeah, we are, you wrote it. Uh, as we've just alluded to the interesting thing about the chapter where Martin covers a game with a story and a backstory for each player and kind of their memories Martin speaking to each player like how was it for you because you're a Newcastle fan how was it for you hearing all of those guys speak so passionately about those experiences Um. well you have your writer head on and there's a book to be written and it's the first book I've, book I've done so you're just kind of charging on really but it was Incredibly taken back to that period, um, but also to see how 
how how proud they were at the time, but also how much regret there is. Um, Steve Watson said, I still think about it perhaps more than is healthy. Lee Clark said, I had a space on the mantelpiece for quite a long time. <laughs> he said, for the medal, which is now gone. Uh, Darren Peacock said, yeah, I'm proud, but you depress me when we talk about how close we got to it. Warren Barton, who was in America when I spoke to him, said, I think about it every day. <laughs> Steve Howie said, I think about it every time Sky Sports comes on the telly. <laughs> Terry McDermott was said, Man United wouldn't have missed one title, would they? It's all we wanted one. So, yeah, they, they, I think they're all incredibly proud of what they did, but it, but it hasn't gone in the mind. If you think as, as supporters are talking about what it was like 20 years later, well, there's not a great deal more the supporters could have done. They turned up in numbers everywhere. Uh, the home support was great. The you know the big followings at, towards the end of the season at Liverpool and Blackburn, big following down at Blackburn. Um, Leeds on a Monday, Forest on a Thursday, Bradley St James Park for the Sunday. Perhaps as a player, you think, well, if I could have done that, if I could have done this, because they all massively regret. It. I mean, the, there's a lovely phrase from Kevin when he said the only title we got was um, everybody's favourite second team, and he said. He said, that's not actually a bad title to have. For a load of neutrals around the country to love watching your football club play football is not bad. Obviously, it's not what he wanted. Um, I think, you know, as I said, he had to be coerced to come back to do the lap of honour. Because I think, and but what Peter Beardsley said was amazing that he went around the dressing room after the Tottenham game and put his hands in everybody's faces and says, You were brilliant, you did so well, you should be proud. We're a team that's come from nowhere and we had four new players in the summer. But I think deep down there was just an incredible sense of devastation inside of him. I think maybe maybe Kevin Keegan has let it go, but I'm I'm not sure everybody else has. Mm. Yeah, fascinating stuff, and like like you say, it's the the thing that jumps out. Maybe that I wasn't expecting. Was he a bit? Were, were people involved at the time to be able to give you such raw memories and such mm. uh, you know such access to what went on? And it's a even if you're not any Castle fan, this is a great story. It's a great sporting story. And Michael, you at the time as a fan, you obviously still got plenty of memories and stories yourself. And one of the things I remember is because I never went to every single away game. I went to a number, but not every single one. Was the um, communal feeling that there was around the place. So you'd go to a pub, and the whole bar would be watching Sky. And then when Keegan came on the TV afterwards, the whole place would be silent. In, to the point where you could hear the bar staff cleaning the glasses and the bar would be hundreds deep in Newcastle supporters watching the game on the on the TV and and one of the one of the one of the ones I caught on on TV after the after a game was Leeds away when Keegan lost it yeah. apparently and you know I watched that in the pub after the after the game when it when the, uh, when he went and he and he lost it nobody thought he lost it hmm. the, that was a media thing oh, yeah, he's yeah. lost it he's gone crazy etc nobody thought he'd lost it actually we were all ready to march with lanterns and pitchforks <laughs> yes. on the on the Manchester because actually what Ferguson said was disgraceful remember it was hmm. disgraceful he was accusing Nottingham Forest of cheating. You know, so how he didn't ever get up on a charge, I'll never yeah. ever know. But he was accusing them of cheating. It was outrageous what he what he said, and I think it upset Kevin that nobody had really kind of understood mm. the gravity of what he was accusing 
fellow professionals of that, well, because Stuart Pearce had a testimonial at the end of the season, and because it was Newcastle, Forrest wouldn't try against Newcastle. Because the the, 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 the the subtext to it, which got missed at the time and is missed more or less all the time, I'm, I'm glad you said that, Alex Ferguson, was, and Alex Ferguson himself admitted, he said, I wasn't having a go at Kevin Keegan. What he was doing was accusing everybody of having such a huge hatred of Manchester United that it would affect how they played against Newcastle United. That's what he did, and that's what Keegan bit against, because Keegan said, you, you're being particularly unprofessional here. Now, if you bear in mind, Ian Warne may have said that he regretted the goal. He scores one of the, the pivotal goals in that season. Uh, and there was this Leeds, a team I hate, man, United, fought doggedly in that game as well. So Keegan's point was you're undermining professionals. It was never a direct war between them. Yeah, wasn't a mind games thing. Yeah, no, no, it was pressure. And Ferguson said he'd been out drinking with two journalists that afternoon, got back into his chair, was was trying desperately hard to think Mm -hmm. of a reason why he was slightly drunk and why he'd been out so long. Watched the end of the Leeds game, hoping Leeds would grab an equaliser. And then, he said, then Kevin came on and started uh, with his famous phrase, and he said, I'd never meant to wind him up. He said it was, but he said there was a hell of a lot of pressure around at that point. And he said, I, I thought that's what it was. And that's what it was. Martin, have you heard the story about, um, about the so-called mind games? And uh, there's an ex-director wrote a book, Terry Cassidy, a while, yeah. a while ago. And, uh, and in that book, he makes a bit of a statement, he's dead now, Cassidy, but he makes a statement that the mind games didn't come from Ferguson. Right. It came from John Hall. And right. uh, and that apparently when we'd lost to Man United, Hall was in the dressing room saying, "Well, that's it, we've lost it," and said something similar on a train going to London the following day. Right, you know, so maybe it wasn't Ferguson putting Kevin under so much pressure. Maybe it was Hall. Well, you know, and I don't know if that was true, but that that has been written by a, <laughs> a you know the PLC chairman, I think he was at the time. Well, John Hall says that they said to Kevin by a centre half, which he didn't do. Mm. Kind of answering that point and come back to you on one you'd mentioned before, the city went into a state of panic because the city had never won the title. Most people alive had never seen Newcastle win win the the league title, so everybody went into panic. There was so much pressure from the board, from inside the club, from outside the club. Nobody knew how to handle it. Perhaps everybody got a bit carried away when there was the big lead and you know the Christmas cards in nineteen ninety five. You know celebrating when the premier premiership as it was then were kind of indicative of the everybody just got went too fast and then when it started to unravel everyone got too carried away so all the brilliant things about being from Newcastle and the city and the emotion just were, just were um, multiplied hugely and Kevin Keegan was the bloke in the middle of all this so as Alex Ferguson said it was no perhaps no wonder that he started to feel some of the pressure you know he'd, he'd led this football club and his as you said, everybody with their pickaxes. He was leading this this band of people from the north uh, on, on the attack, and then suddenly you thought perhaps it might not happen, or it might happen, or it's going to it's going to be a lot closer than anybody thought. So I think the pressure inside the city was just absolutely incredible. Yeah, and we're we're nearly at the end of the show, so I think we should end on a positive note. Okay. Um, how was how did you you know you just said to us it was kind of eighteen months of your life writing this book. Did you enjoy it? Was it a good experience? Was what did I mean? You're a football journalist. You used to being around footballers, and but was meeting most of any of these guys was was that particularly special? Or the heroes of yours? Um, it was it was special meeting all of them. I absolutely love doing it. It's I'm dead pleased with the, the Kubertan books they made. I'm really pleased with how the, the what they brought out in the, the final product. 
with it being a small publisher, it means you're involved in every single stage of the book's development, and you kind of left your own devices to write it's an idea in your head that's just uh, flown. You're going through all picture files. Your cast were very helpful for the pictures, um, even the end covers. Choose never to be black and white. So there's so many little details. So when it comes out and it's finished, it's very very tiring because maybe I don't know if it's because it's my first book. It's in your head as soon as you wake up. You mm-hmm. think about it even when you go to watch a match and do something else. You think about it at night. And at night was when I did a lot of the writing between about 10 o'clock and 1, sometimes 2 in the morning. So I think I need a holiday, which I've got booked for a couple of weeks' time. But it was a, compl- to kind of phrase, it was a complete labour of love to go back to that period. And go, they added little bonuses of going back to the, the, the season when Newcastle first arrived in the Premiership. Uh, and games like all of them away and Manchester United away things that weren't originally my idea to be part of the book the publisher said you kind of need to tell the story from survival to the the start of that campaign and going down to see David Kelly at at Scunthorpe and the conversation going on so long he missed the first half of a game against Hollypool Reserves (laughs) arriving somewhere near Huddersfield outside of a pub and this uh, huge bloke and workman's boots with covered in paint and uh, all sorts of stuff and it's Brian Kilkline and then he goes you can't I'm, I said I can't stay here I'm going to get a parking ticket <laughs> so he got in the car it was like high tower getting in the car please Academy 1 he's all scrunched up and we, the next thing we're born in this pub and he's effing and blinding and <laughs> all these old years on two for ones on nearly having heart attacks there was just so many memories as I said in Belgium Philippe Albert taking us out on the drink with his mates who drink at an Olympian pace with a super <laughs> strong lawyer uh, to Prague and Pav came out with my friends on a stag dude to watch Newcastle against um, Manchester City in the League Cup last season just there was just so many and just meeting these people that brought Newcastle as a club in the city they brought it to life you know that uh, and just be sat down with them and some of the conversations that nobody spoke for less than an hour some were four three or four hours because it was just such a massive part of life so for all of them for all their time out incredibly grateful and uh, no it was a brilliant experience a brilliant experience I, I think I, when I come back from Holly I'll be recharged again but uh, no it was great I absolutely loved it I just hope so far the reaction's been uh, overwhelming I just hope people continue to enjoy it brilliant I certainly did um, if you listen to this and you, you haven't bought it please do if you're in a Castle fan you'll, you'll absolutely love it and I suppose we'll leave it yeah, there thanks very much lads Martin thanks for your time can I mention a couple of things it'll be a, uh, a book signing at Watson's at 12 o'clock on Saturday Sunday rather before the match and there is a do at Crowning Benedictine Club at next Thursday with Keith Gillespie and one at 42nd Street and Willie Bay with myself and Keith Gillespie again brilliant thanks very much thank you Chuck.
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.